Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. I just don't think the government has done enough post-Brexit, post-pandemic crisis, and probably, by the way, in the light of what's just happened in the East to get the country growing again. Now, that's the part two of Brexit I really want to see. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, Chopper to my friends, and officially the Associate Editor for Politics for the Daily Telegraph. And in this bonus episode of the podcast, we'll be looking forward to the spring statement this week with Tony Danker, the Director General of the CBI and tackling the thorny issue of immigration with Tory MP Andrew Mitchell. But first, as the cost of living crisis escalates, and with many already feeling the pinch, how are people feeling about tax rises ahead of Rishi Sunak's spring statement on Wednesday? Research group Ipsos has done some exclusive polling for Chopper's politics, and Ipsos CEO for UK and Ireland, Kelly Beaver, joined me in Red Lion Pub to discuss their findings. Kelly Beaver, the Chief Executive of Ipsos in the UK and Ireland. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Brilliant to be here. Thanks for having me. We're in a basement at the Red Lion pub. And out there, outside here, politics is going on. It's a big week this week, the spring statement on Wednesday. You've done some polling exclusively for our podcast. Thank you for that. About trust and taxes. What have you found? Well, so trust in the economy, who do they trust to manage the economy? Who do they trust to manage tax and spend is a big issue as we go into the middle of this week. And over the last period, it's quite common that people would trust Conservatives to manage the economy, Labour to manage things like cost of living. But on trust around taxing and government spending, we're finding people are quite equal in their views of who's best to do this, both Conservatives and Labour getting around 30% each. So they're not really thinking that the Conservatives are as strong as they might have been historically in this particular area. Is that fallen historically? It has, yeah, it it has. So, on, on well, so Tories have always been better on tax spending and growing the economy. It's been their natural strength. And we're seeing in the last, say from about the August time and then more rapidly over the Christmas period, a decline in the public's views on how well government are managing the economy in general. So that is feeding into how they're feeling going into the middle of this week. And that goes back to this big increase in national insurance coming in April. That was a breach of a manifesto pledge made on page two of the manifesto back in 2019. Is that feeding into this lack of trust for Tories about tax? Well, so before government brought in that particular tax part back in October, 
the public were actually quite supportive. It's when it happened in reality and it was communicated as something that was going to happen quite fundamentally that the public's views started to shift and they became less supportive. It's about a third now who say that they would support this tax rise. And what rise. was it? Well, it was around 45% coming into it and then it dropped off. Is that because tax is always something that happens to other people? Well, until it happens to you. Well, actually, so on this particular occasion, there are a number of concerns from the public. It's a bit about the fairness of how it's implemented and the negative impact on people in lower income groups, on young people. And fairness is a big thing for the British public. We see that constantly when we talk about taxes and how they're implemented. But also, they're quite clear that they're not sure this is even going to go far enough. So if you ring fence this national insurance contribution for the NHS, the public still don't think it will go far enough. And there are concerns about whether they will actually see the implementation leading to better so quality. So 6 and 10 back it being hypothecated, which yes, means yeah. it's spent just on That's national true. insurance. It is, is, of course, called a social care levy, isn't it? So it's meant to be given that degree of protection from being raided by other parts of government. Yeah, and the public are supportive of that. They're yeah. just If still, it holds, though, because it, historically these things don't last that way. And they're still concerned that it's not enough. So even if it was ring-fenced... Is it really enough to cover what's required year, to improve? It? It's a huge amount of money, but it's still enough to feed through to the quality improvements that are needed in the NHS. Should Rishi Sunak, who stands up in front of MPs on Wednesday, be worried? Uh, your polling finds that just one in three think he's doing a good job as Chancellor. So he has had quite an interesting public opinion journey because he took this role. We had pandemic and he did incredibly well. He was in the history of our polling the second highest Chancellor ratings that we've seen next to Healy back in the 1970s. So he has come very, very far. However, in more recent times, we have seen that in decline. And he's now in the sort of normal range for a Chancellor at this stage in his tenure. So that's where he sits at the minute. But he faces quite a backdrop of lack of optimism around the economy from the public. They are very concerned about inflation, the cost of living and how this impacts on them personally. And we see from our polling things like people changing their shopping habits already because they know that they're heading into quite a challenging time. So I think he's got that backdrop when people care about their personal finances and that will make it a challenging budget for him to deliver. So people are buying less things in the shops now, so spending is falling. Well, they are changing their spending habits. So they're changing supermarkets. We're seeing a proportion of people move to Aldi, Lidl, Asda, etc. They're thinking about buying in bulk now. And we also have three in 10 people who are telling us that they're looking now at offers, significantly targeting offers when they go in to do their shopping. Those kind of behaviours are preempting what they think is going to come, which is the energy price rise. But they're already seeing it in their grocery baskets as well. And, and you found some evidence that people think... That- the national insurance increase should go through, but it should be delayed while yes, we get over this, yeah. this next, the, the, of course, the big hike in energy prices coming up. That's right. It's around a third who say, go ahead, a third who say, actually, go ahead, but delay it. And then a proportion who would rather that there wasn't an increase in taxes. But interestingly, so we've had austerity periods and where things have been really challenging before. And what we're seeing at the minute is the public not saying, you know, pull back on public spending. They want to see spending because they recognise that there's a need to invest in public services. So when we ask them about this trade-off between taxation and spend, it still is, yes, you need to spend, and we're willing to accommodate a degree of tax as a result. So people get the reasons, and perhaps that might mean the Tories are less punished in the 24 election, if it's in 24. It's quite a while away, actually. So I know this budget will be important for Rishi Sunak. It will be his first post-COVID, or we say coming out of COVID um, budget. And 
it's in an era where public concern around their cost of living is very high. And that's not traditionally a conservative, strong area. Are Labour benefiting from this? Normally, it's a yin and yang. You know, the Tories are down in one area, Labour increase. Or Labour not really cutting through? Uh, not really. Not really, to be honest. So at the minute, Tories are fairly neck on neck with Labour in terms of how public perceive them to be managing tax and spend. They're the governing party. And so therefore, naturally, they're being viewed in their own performance on the economy. And Labour haven't had that to contend with. But they're not really benefiting around public perceptions of their own handling of the economy, their own positioning on it either though the public do often think Labour will do better on cost of living generally. Because they'll be more supportive for those on lower incomes. But they're not really, it's been quite hard for Labour, I think, over the various crises which have uh, beset this country. I suppose Brexit was a crisis for some people, not for others, but more seriously COVID and then now really seriously Ukraine. It's hard for Labour to cut through, isn't it, with an alternative vision? Yes, but you were talking earlier just about the run up to this election in 2024. And Ukraine is going to be a big topic for a period of time for the British public. It's the top issue in our issues index, which we've been polling for over 50 years. It's the thing we're most worried about, you know, defence, security, etc. But just look below the surface of that and it is the economy, it's inflation. Beneath the surface of that you have the residual effects of COVID because people are still concerned and it is still high prevalence across the country as well. So there's quite a lot for this government to contend with and it's not just going to be uh, defence and security. We have Tony Danker, the CBI Director General on this podcast today. Are there any lessons in here for businesses? I mean, obviously national insurance is a business tax too. It's paid by employers and employees. Anything else? Some corporation tax should come down maybe? Is that part of the view of the people you poll? Well, so I think the biggest things coming out of this polling for businesses will be about wage inflation, actually, if I'm honest with you, because you're going to be seeing pressures on individual people. And if tax rises like national insurance tax go through, which they are very likely to proceed on that basis, and people are being squeezed on other things like energy prices, the staff base for our employers and our businesses is going to be under extreme personal financial pressure. And I think that's something that businesses, small, medium and large, need to be thinking about as we go into this year. Well, Kelly Beaver, the Chief Executive in UK and Ireland of Ipsos, thank you for joining us today on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the CBI has had its issues with the government over the years, most recently about Brexit. And that's led some to say that the government is anti-business, which I find extraordinary, not least because the CBI and the Tories have always walked in lockstep on so many policies. It was an issue I thought I'd raise with Tony Danker, the CBI's new Director General. Tony, welcome to Redline Pub and Chopper's Politics. It's completely wonderful to be here. I do find being in the basement of the Red Lion pub, it's not exactly what I dreamed of for this no, job of high prestige, but I'm delighted to yeah. be here nonetheless. Luckily, there's no drinks here because it's in the morning yeah. and we're in the basement. We're like kind of hobbits. I mean, growing up in Ireland, I'm not unused to the basements of pubs <laughs> at 11 o'clock in the morning, but yes. it just wasn't everything I hoped for this job, yes. Chris. Now, you're the CBI Director General. Yeah. You were there when Boris Johnson came to speak last year, which I thought was an ill-prepared speech. Yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, uh, to, to Peppa Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to Pans? I've been who's been to Peppa Pig World. Not enough. And so with, with safer streets, uh, with great local schools, uh, with fantastic uh, broadband... Uh, uh, 
Forgive me. Forgive me. Did you feel disrespected at the CBI? Not at all, to be honest. I mean, you know, the only thing was I made quite a good speech before it. Nobody covered it. That that was the real problem. (laughs) Now, look, Peppa Pig made all the headlines, but actually... I mean, there was some pretty good content in the PM speech. Of course, nobody will ever know or indeed probably go back and read it. So, yes, it's a shame because we did a lot of really good stuff together in both our speeches on levelling up. And we couldn't go to it, of course. It was virtual, but you'll be in person this year, won't you? We will indeed. I think we're going to be in Birmingham this year. In Birmingham. Well, I've been to at least two decades worth of CBI conferences. Here, here. I'll I'll be there too. He lost his way. He lost his place. In the old days, a CBI speech was a big moment for a Tory prime minister in the same way Labour leaders took the TUC speech seriously. Do you worry there's a falling out between the CBI and the government and that was evidenced by that speech? No, I think that might be over-interpretation. No, that's my job as a journalist. <laughs> Look, I think he had a bad speech day, right? So I think we might be over-interpreting okay. it. But I think your broader point about CBI and the government or business and government is, you know, is, is perhaps what you're alluding to. Look, people say the government is anti-business. I don't believe it is. I do think this government's quite populist. And so when you actually look at the policies of the government, they are betting the shop on the private sector, right? Leveling up, science superpower, the renewable energy. It is all in the plans. It shall be delivered by the trillions of the private sector. So private sector thinking permeates all their policies. But let's be honest, when populism demands it, business will get taken out for a beating. Hmm. That's what happens from time to but time. But not by a Tory government. That's what I find so interesting because I remember back to the days when David Cameron didn't go to the CBI conference for some reason in the noughties and he was pilloried by the Telegraph and it was seen as a massive disrespect. I just don't know why this government appears to be so whatever, webs, to quote my teenage children, about business when it should be so important as the the wealth creators of this country should be walking in lockstep with this government. I think when the government is under pressure, you'll tend to get a little bit of anti-business flourish. So, you know, we saw it at last Tory party conference on immigration. Apparently, we are all, what was it, mainlining on immigrant labour, according Mm. to the Prime Minister. Or, you know, Michael Gove did it a little bit recently on cladding. Apparently, we're completely to blame for all of that. So I think when the government's under a bit of pressure, we'll get a bit of a whack. It's regrettable. But what's more important, talking of the spring statement, is whether or not actually in substantive policy terms, this is a pro-private sector, pro-growth government. Uh, I think it is, but well, we're, we're, they're only as good as their next, uh, their next match, right? I was there, of course, and you may be there, Tony, when Dominic Cummings' Vote Leave gang demonstrated the CBI. They were trying to find vested interests, weren't they, to take on and fight for Brexit when Brexit was unlikely to happen in most, most people's eyes. Is there a hangover amongst that, amongst the senior people around the Boris Johnson, that they worry the CBI's just doesn't like Brexit, really? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, the truth was... I, you know that old book, is Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, right? My reflection on the whole Brexit period is business people didn't like Brexit, most of them, obviously, because it was a curtailment of free trade. Surprise, surprise, they didn't like it. Right. The political class interpreted that as a grand political act, and they didn't understand that sovereignty was more important. And you know what? They're right. Sovereignty was more important. You know, I've said to the prime minister and to others, for us, it was just business. But for you, it was something bigger. 
I think that really explains the Brexit business v government sort of debate. And I tell you something, seeing as you've opened the door, Chris, <laughs> I was not a Brexiteer, but I am a post-Brexiteer. I'm interested in what happens now. Yeah. I mean, Brexit, two-part process. Part one, we leave. That was supposed to be the easy part, <laughs> right? Part two, we grow, we flourish. The swashbuckling, conservative, enterprising party makes Britain a high-growth country. I'm waiting for that part. That's the bit I'm signed Oddly, up for. Oddly, so are we <laughs> yeah, at the Telegraph. Yeah. We're still waiting for this. I mean, corporation tax, of course, that, 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 the trend of that was downwards and George Osborne is reversed at the CBI conference pre-2019. Part of the problem, the CBI thing, was it didn't like Brexit much, but it worried about Jeremy Corbyn more. So it didn't yeah. even bark when Boris Johnson announced that plan to reverse George Osborne's cutting corporation tax. Not a peep from the audience. They just sucked it up. And I think the what, part, what did you want them to do? Stand up, shout, say, "What the bloody hell are you doing? <laughs> You're a Tory prime minister, and you're reversing a tax cut for us, yeah. but not a peep." And I wonder whether. You know, you need to get your mojo back. But you seem, uh, you I, seem I you you're are just fired goading, up. You are goading me into saying something <laughs> mojo-like. That's your problem. Look, You're I, fired up, but let, Well, let, Look, I think the tax debate is a little different now, right? Let's be honest. And this is where the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are right. I suspect we're about to talk about tax. Look, we've just been through an unbelievable pandemic where the government stood behind every business and every citizen in this country. So do I think it is morally legitimate for the government to tax more after the pandemic and that we as businesses should be paying more tax after the pandemic? Of course, but it does lead us into the crux of the government's core challenge right now and the national insurance discussion, which is only, by the way, one example of the fundamental challenge the government has now, which is this. Spending is on the rise. Taxes are on the rise. Debt is on the rise and growth is flatlining. And my big concern for this spring statement and for the whole of economic policy this year is that unless this government works out how to get growth going, we're going to have more incidents like the national insurance problem where, of course, spending needs to go up. You know, we've got public transportation systems that are now uneconomic. We've got catch-up education to do. We've got health paid for, but not, let's be honest, yet social care. So the pressures in public spending are inexorable. I'm not sure how much higher taxes can go. So you either borrow more, which I don't think many Tories want to do, or you grow more. And I just don't think the government has done enough post-Brexit, post-pandemic crisis, and probably, by the way, in the light of what's just happened in the East, to get the country growing again. Now, that's the part two of Brexit I really want to see. Oliver Dowden said in Friday's podcast, ahead of their spring conference, that taxes will not go up any further than they have. So that's a start. But what do you want to see to be cut to support that growth agenda? But I think that's the issue, right? If you want to hold any one of those steady... Either high spending stays or debt doesn't grow or taxes don't grow, then you need growth or you get into a conversation about cutting. Now, my real question and challenge to the government is are we doing enough to grow, right? So the problem with a six point corporation tax overnight or a national insurance employers overnight is look, the Chancellor says, you know, cutting taxes doesn't pay for themselves, and he may well be right. But raising taxes is not without economic consequence, right? So you can raise taxes if you want, but if you don't have corresponding incentives, measures, ideas and policies to unlock growth, then you're going to end up with a set of unpalatable decisions. 
So what do I want to see in the spring statement? Number one, if he is going to proceed with the national insurance uh, rise, and I'm pretty convinced, given the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have written letters to newspapers saying they will, <laughs> they will then what else is in place to start incentivizing business investment? You know, businesses in the first quarter of the year have been pretty positive, but now with the Ukraine-Russian crisis, their confidence is starting to wane. Now is the time to essentially unlock and incentivize business investment. There's no point in waiting till the autumn. You do that now in order to stabilize confidence whilst we've still got... So tax breaks? Tax breaks focused on investment, which I think the Chancellor has recognized is the missing piece of the British economy. We have one of perhaps the only upsides of this terrible crisis in the East is that I think we now need to genuinely double down on renewable and clean energy. Now, most people... Really? Most people, really? Well, yes. And most people in this part of the world think that's a political discussion and it's all the woke greenies and all that. This is about money and investment. There are, as Mark Carney tells us, $130 trillion waiting to be invested in the country that can crack green and renewable energy. It's real money, Chris. This but is the risk bigger of being, money. Being an outlier is that we invest heavily in the wrong kind of green crap. To quote uh, David Cameron wrongly, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of you <laughs> wrong, think wrongly <laughs> quoting David Cameron wrongly. That's a double wrong. But I don't really think that is a risk. To be honest, we all know hydrogen, carbon capture, offshore, onshore wind, and nuclear. We all know it is the future, right? And whilst, of course, I think the Prime Minister's right to talk about the bridge that North Sea oil and gas need to play. The sooner we race to the future, the sooner we win the $130 trillion that's looking to go somewhere. Are you a fracker? Nope. Not even a safe fracker, which no, is the government well, policy. You know, if safe fracking is a thing, you know, let's have it on the table. But I just don't think it's a thing. And by the way, people are saying that you have to choose between green and national wealth. It is totally the opposite, right? And this is where the Prime Minister is completely right. And fair play to him for his article in The Telegraph the other day, when we've looked at all the economic opportunities for UK companies in the next 10 years. I am telling you now, all the money is green. All the money is green. And the City of London is filled with people looking to deploy their money. And I'm telling you, the European Union are using their COVID resilience fund to build green technology. So what would you say to Nigel Farage, who's planning a net zero referendum? And he's been patronised before and ignored before, and look what happened. He wants to have a net zero referendum on the policy to hit there by 2050. It is detached from any assessment how this country is going to grow in the next 10 years. And if you want to know where the money is... If I can talk business for a second in the red line. You're allowed to. You want to know where the money is. The money is in green. By the way, if you want to level up, I'm telling you, the high value industries with high value skills and the high wages the Prime Minister orders, they're all in green. You mentioned the East. One can't ignore and one shouldn't ignore the dreadful headlines out of Ukraine. How is the CBI being affected by that? Have you cleared out members of the CBI who have links to Putin? Well, no, we don't have them, but we are doing formal checks. You know, we will, of course, seek government advice uh, from those. But look, I tell you what's really interesting about this. I've been sort of shocked, really, about how quickly we've moved to sanctions as a mode of warfare. Listen, this war is not costing the government money in terms of tanks and soldiers and helicopters, right? It's costing the country, the businesses and people at the pump, but it's not costing the government money. So it's a very unusual moment. But I have done probably four round tables with businesses since the start of the war. And I've said, guys, sanctions, what's your view? To which everybody says, hit us hard, absolutely worth it, right? Right. 
There is 100% support for the government using sanctions to combat Putin. Now, as we know, it's easier in some sectors than the others. I mean, everybody is self-sanctioning, right? Everybody is looking to go way beyond where sanctions are. But it throws up some really big questions. Again, perhaps for the spring statement, right? Where are we going to get our energy mix from? I think the PM's on to that one. Where are we going to get our commodities from? All the metals that we're using in steel and cars and yeah, other and things. And the precious metals. The precious metals. We're about to probably have to withstand some cybersecurity attacks happening in the Ukraine at the moment, but will be coming to a place near us. And confidence is waning amongst businesses. So all of that needs propped up. If you really want true economic independence from Russia, you need to prosecute that agenda. You can't just turn around and say, right, everybody out, and then we're done. Because there is an economic cost to sanctions for us, and we therefore want to build our resilience to be able to afford to do what we need to do to stop Putin. Are you worrying about the lights staying on? You tweeted a note this week, didn't you, saying how much you welcomed Boris Johnson's piece you referred to earlier in the Telegraph. But the lights staying on, soaring energy costs, these are what I think readers, listeners, consumers are worrying about. Yeah, look, I think that the Prime Minister, I hope, is about to publish his energy strategy. It will tell us how the lights will stay on. I'm completely convinced they will, by the way. It's can you afford to have them on as well, I suppose. Yeah, look, I think we are going to have to work out how this is affordable. Right now, what's going on, there are some people who are really struggling with a cost of living crisis. It's not everybody. It's a discrete set of mostly poorly paid people. But through the rest of the year, because of this crisis, what economists call aggregate consumption, which basically is what we all spend, that is going to take a hit. Yes, I mean, of course, a lot of it's going to be driven by energy, but there was inflation anyway. And so, yeah, look, I think the country's going to have to have a conversation about its growth formula or its growth strategy. Uh, and if we don't start it in the spring statement, it won't be long before we have to start it. Labour. Are you talking to Labour? Are they talking to you? Yeah, we have frequent meetings, all the business organisations with the Labour leadership, with Keir Starmer, with Rachel Rees, with Johnny Reynolds and others. When did you last meet Keir Starmer? We saw Keir Starmer this week. We had one of the regular B5, which is the CBI, the Federation of Small Businesses and so on. The BCC and the rest. The BCC, the IOD, Make UK. You forced me to say everyone because now I'm worried about the people I left out. We all had a meeting uh, as we do and they ask us what's on the mind of businesses and we get a chance to comment on their policies. And so I think they're doing the right things that a Labour Party should be doing at this stage in the state. They are. I had heard they weren't meeting, actually. So no, no, they are encouraging. And are they a party which business can talk to? I mean, to be honest. Because concerns, weren't well, they, under, under Jeremy say, Corbyn? Let's, let's say just that. say, it's very different to what came before. <laughs> okay. You're grinning when you say that, but I can see that. So I've got that for listeners. We now have a Brexit Opportunities Minister, don't we, Jacob Rees-Mogg? You see opportunities in Brexit. You've gone past the decision point, haven't you? So you, yeah. you agree with him. You'll be meeting with ideas to Yeah, thank help. goodness. I think it's fantastic that he's been given the job. And I really want to get into a radical discussion about what that looks like. Look, what are the Brexit opportunities, if you ask me? Number one, that we actually now are sovereign about an economic strategy to grow faster than the rest of Europe. I don't think we have that, by the way, but I think that's where we should be. Number two, we now can think about international trade on our terms which I have to say, we should be thinking about services because we're a very services-dominated economy. We're pretty good already at thinking about manufacturing and agriculture. What about services? We should be thinking about regulation. 
And regulation, by the way, is not just about let's deregulate. You've got to be much smarter than that. You know, Britain has the chance to compete in the world by having the smartest, fastest regulation, right? We saw that with the MHRA over the vaccine. I'm also pretty interested to know what Britain's going to back, right? As I just said to you earlier, you know, this whole thing that we were constrained by state aid. You know, what are we backing? Are we backing not winning sectors, are we backing emerging British success stories, right? Last week, I was in, I'm going to come back to green, sorry, Chris, but I was in the Humber, and there were 14 global companies describing Humber and Teesside, the whole East Coast cluster, as potentially the most interesting renewable energy corner in the world. Now, I want to see the Brexit Opportunities Minister say, I am no longer constrained by state aid. I'm going to put government right in the middle of that. And in fairness, the government are backing them to say, right, Britain is going to dominate this market. I mean, that sounds like a kind of creed occur, which I hope Jacob Rees-Mogg listens to. He does listen to this podcast, I think. Why is this kind of crouch, uh, rather than standing up straight, to address the opportunities of Brexit that I detect in Whitehall and you're talking about there? I really don't know. But again, I'm all about part two, and this is where we need to be now. If you just step back a second and you think, where has Britain been since the financial crisis, right? We have had flatlining productivity, pretty low performance on skills, lowest investment country in the G7. I mean, if Brexit wasn't to tackle some of that stuff, right, what was it for? And I just think the level of response from the government has to be commensurate with Depends if you're a glass half full. If you're a glass half full person like me, you say commensurate with the opportunities for Britain. You seem to be saying that Brexit is an opportunity, not, 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 a, not a problem to be dealt with, which is... Yeah, listen, I, look, let me be clear. I didn't vote for it. Right? Yeah, but most of our members, most business people aren't enjoying the fact that we're doubly regulated and everything costs more and we all have to stand in queues. But what they're hoping, therefore, to offset all of that is that we start to do the good stuff. We start to regulate But you worry about the government not being engaged by that, by the opportunity of it. Let's give Jacob... You made a pub, you can can say what you like. Oh, right, fine. No, look, let's give Jacob a little bit of slack. This stuff isn't easy. And there is plenty of small-c conservatism that will give you a hundred reasons why we shouldn't think more radically about investment and growth. But I'm looking for some ambitious big-c conservatism that says we did this for a reason and our best days you are ahead see, of you us. Want to see a and Brexit, let's go. You want to see a Brexit vision? Yeah, and one that grows the economy so that we can afford to, A, challenge Vladimir Putin, B, afford the health and social care problems that we have, C, bring down the national debt, and D, for the low-tax conservatives you, out there, perhaps, perhaps bring change, taxes down. change the B in CBI to Brexit. Yeah, that might be over. I'm not sure that was over, over, terribly is that over-edging well. It? That <laughs> might be overdoing it a little bit. Look, again, let's be very clear, right? There has been an economic cost to Brexit, right? I don't even think in the quiet red lion pub, many Brexiteers would not admit to it. Maybe it was over-egged. Maybe the world didn't fall over, right? But the OBR say Brexit's going to cost the economy 4% of GDP. I can tell you now there are a gazillion businesses who are sitting in queues, being doubly regulated and wading through red tape. So there has been a cost to it, right? I'm not going to try and pretend that there hasn't. But my God, I mean, it's happened. We had this around six years ago. Can we move on and do part two and grow the British economy? And just finally, looking into Spring's statement, what do you think the Tories stand for? Are they pro-low tax? Are they pro-spending? Do you worry that the party has lost its way? As we are, we're in a fourth term Tory government, they've been in power for 12 years, but it's hard. And back in the days of 
Margaret Thatcher, we had John Redwood on the podcast saying how you could just, without even talking to her, you knew what her response would be to any problem at all. You just don't have that with Boris Johnson, do you? Uh, no, look, I'm not Mr. Politics, right? And there'll be experts on the Conservative Party, many of them that aren't me. I tell you what I do think is interesting in the last few weeks. There's an emerging debate about Lawsonism. Nigel Lawson, right? So Rishi Sunak says, Nigel Lawson, you basically get fiscally prudent, then you can afford to do tax cuts. Others say it's time for tax cuts now. I'm not going to resolve that debate. I think you and your guests should <laughs> definitely resolve it sometime soon. Tony, our time is up, but I'm going to give you a mug. It says, I went on chopper politics and all, all I got was this lousy mug. There you are. That's the president from the podcast to the CBI, I'm the very... Confederation of Brexit Industry. Yeah, well, careful with that. I'm very chuffed to get the mug, although I'm worried now that I went on Chopper's politics and all I got was lousy headlines. <laughs> no, don't worry about that. Tony Danker, and if I was in Germany, Merce Danker. Or just thank you. Right, please do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking about the Home Office's plans for offshoring refugee processing centres with Tory MP Andrew Mitchell. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, the troubles in Ukraine do not mask the continuing movement of politics in Britain. And this week, the Home Office wants to push plans through the House of Commons to force migrants who arrive here to be processed in offshore centres. Not all Tory MPs are happy with this, not least Andrew Mitchell, the former government chief whip. Andrew Mitchell, welcome to Chopper's Politics here in the Red Lion pub. Now, it's a big week again in, in Westminster. We have the, um, the spring statement on, on Wednesday. But before that, you've got an unwelcome surprise for the government because you're leading a rebellion, aren't you? Well, I, I, I hope it's not an unwelcome surprise. I hope it's Parliament doing its job of helping the government to get things right. And uh, this uh, bill, the Borders Bill, is an extremely good and much-needed measure, but it can be improved, in particular in three ways. The first is something which my colleague N. Duncan Smith talks about a lot, which is allowing uh, asylum seekers to work after a sh the shortest possible period so they're not a cost on the public purse and so that they can make a contribution and that's one issue which I hope the government will agree to. There are two others. The first is that the government put into the bill uh, a provision to send all asylum seekers who reach this country to a far-off destination um, and what the Lords have done under 
Michael Howard's, the former Home Secretary's former immigration minister, Lord Kirkhope, is to take out the provision which allows them to do that. This is an absurd idea, Chris. The idea that we're going to cart desperate people who reach this country seeking asylum and fleeing persecution off to Ghana or Albania or the Ascension Islands is is ridiculous. It's it's morally wrong. It's unbelievably expensive. It would actually cost less to put an asylum seeker up in the Ritz Hotel in London than to, to, to offshore them in this way. So we very much hope the government will accept the decision of the Lords, which is, is to uh, take that out of the bill and not offshore at the moment. Okay. The, uh, and that's the first one. The second one is we want to introduce a global resettlement scheme for... Uh, asylum seekers coming to this country. This is not economic migrants. This is those fleeing persecution. Uh, If there was a legal scheme, then that would break the people traffickers, the people smugglers model, which is driving people in leaky boats across across the channel. That's what you need to have. Okay, the Home Office say on the last one they're doing that already, and this doesn't go far enough, they claim, so they think that that you're you're going not as far as they're going in terms of the safe routes. They agree on safe routes. They agree on safe routes, but they won't put a number on it. Right, so the number is 10,000 refugees. So so we are saying 10,000, which is about 13 per constituency, and once you've got a number in legislation, you can increase it or decrease it according to need. Obviously, at the moment, because you've got people coming from Afghanistan and you've got people coming from Ukraine, the figure will be much higher. But this is to establish a safe and legal route which does not exist at the moment and which this legislation does not provide. Now, we reported last week that as many as 50 Tory MPs on your side want to try and support these changes made by the Lords. Is that right? Has that gone up? Well, I think it's much more than that. But but what a lot of members of Parliament doing, far more than 50, are saying to the Home Office, saying to their whips, look, this is an absurd provision. Why don't you think again? We all support this bill. We all want to help Priti Patel and the government get it right. But this is absolutely absurd and would challenge both the reputation and the moral authority of the Conservative Party if it were to pursue it. I know you've written a dear colleague letter, which I've I've seen to colleagues in the House of Commons. Someone else leaked it to me. Sorry about that. But it it says here you use this idea of Ascension Island as being a place where these offshore processing might take place. The Home Office say that's bonkers. It will never be a central island. That, of course, is a UK territory a long way away, but it could be somewhere else, somewhere nearer. Um, they also questioned the cost of it in your letter, £2 million per person per year. And so they won't follow the Australian example because they'll learn from that and not, not make the mistakes they made. So they are, they, are, they are contesting some of your claims. Right. Well, first of all, the Home Office cannot find a location that works. They first of all said it was Albania, but the foreign minister of Albania said it was fake news. Then they said it was Ghana. When the presidential spokesman was asking Ghana about this, he was unable to get out a reply because he was laughing so much. And then they suggested Rwanda in order to play on the goodwill and and mm. a serious which approach you know, you to know humanitarian well, affairs, you know which, I, which I know very well. And then they said maybe an overseas territory, and Ascension Islands was definitely mentioned. But if you look, who, who by that's your is that you? No, no, no. This is what the government. Who the said government, Ascension Islands? The government has briefed a whole series of locations. We've been through each one. But on Ascension Islands, if you look at it through Google Earth, there's no infrastructure there. You would have to build Guantanamo Bay on Ascension Islands. It's a stop-off so point on the way to the Falkland so Islands. So there is indeed it is, and or was because or was. the runway isn't working at the moment so it isn't so in other words what the home office is saying is 
We'll find a location. Or you say what location, they don't know because all the locations they've been to so far have been shown to be either ridiculous or the host country has refused. So they're saying, well, we don't know where we'll send them, but give us this power. And the answer that the House of Commons should give is no. We're not giving you a power which you don't know how to use and you don't know where you would use. Find a sensible solution to this problem and then ask the House of Commons for the power. And of course, the sensible solution is to employ a thousand civil servants to process these claims which would be far cheaper than what the Home Office is proposing. And in any event... And where are they held while they're being processed? Well, they'd have to be held in... They're, they're, they're held in Britain as it is at the moment. This is a, an idea as to, because it takes so long to process them, to, to offshore them to a far distant country. Much more sensible to speed up the but process. They're, they're trying to deal with the pull factors, aren't they, to stop people wanting to come here. That's the point about removing these individuals offshore. Well, actually, actually, they shouldn't be doing it. They should certainly be trying to stop up any pull factor. That is true. But people have to be pretty desperate to get into a leaky boat to risk their lives in crossing the channel. What they need to do is to set up a sensible system, which is the resettlement programme we are suggesting for up 10,000 people approximately, give or take a year. They should set up a system for that uh, so that there's safe and legal routes for people to use. And they should drop this bonkers idea of sending them off to Central Africa. When I approached the Home Office last week, they tell me that this is a quote from someone there Andrew Mitchell is a one man band this is one of the most popular things we're going to do and you want to stop it happening well uh, I don't know who gave you that quote uh, uh, but they should uh, they should um, think more carefully than that I'm clearly not a one-man band. There's lots of people. David Davis on your side. Who else well, is on your lots side? Of, there's lots, lots and lots of, of, of people. The, you name the, some the, now. The whole of the whole of the One Nation group are very yeah. concerned about, Damien Green, about this. There's Chairs lots it. of people who are lots of responsible, sensible people are very concerned indeed. But there's an enormous number of people who are looking at this provision uh, in the early part of this week and are saying, "Hang on a minute, what would this do to the reputation of the Conservative Party?" Taking you... taking desperate people and saying, "We're bunging you on a plane and sending you off to Central Africa." You're weakening attempts by this government to deal with illegal immigration. And that is the one thing which appears to cut through all of the polling. On People say, why aren't the Tories doing more to tackle small boats? This is an attempt to tackle small boats. You're trying to make it more difficult for them off to do that. I am doing the very reverse of that. What I'm trying to do is to ensure that there are safe and legal routes so that the illegal uh, entry into the United Kingdom is stopped so that you break the people smugglers model across the channel and so you have a sensible, honourable, decent and cost-efficient way of resolving this problem. Andrew Mitchell, as ever, great to join us this week on Chobbled Politics. Thank you. And let's see what happens in your rebellion. Thank you. Thank you. And as ever, if you have any thoughts about what Andrew had to say there, please do email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or tweet me, I'm at chopperspodcast. Thank you to my guests, Kelly Beaver, Tony Danker, and of course, Andrew Mitchell. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wales, Giles Gear, and Theodora Luludis. And as ever, most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you need more Chopper in your life, and I can't blame you if you do, please do sign up to my Chopper's Politics newsletter delivered daily to your email inbox. And the link to sign up to that is in the show notes to this episode. And of course, if you can, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. And don't forget, later this week, we'll be back with our reaction to the best of the spring statements. Until next time, though, cheerio.